Let's go to the next slide. And, okay, the, everybody knows what this is for, right? What is it? I want you to participate. Please, shout it out. It's a what? It's a reflector, right? So I'm certain there are at least a couple of you here, like me, who didn't actually know the other purpose of this reflector. If you pay attention, the reflector is actually blue, which means that there's a fire hydrant nearby. Did you know that? So the blue, fire, blue reflectors are for the fire department to be able to quickly find fire hydrants. And now, now that you know this, you're going to notice it everywhere you go. You're going to start seeing these blue reflectors, right? Let's go to the next slide. Uh, you know, we've all cooked pasta, right? But not everybody knows that that big hole in the middle, that's not just for draining water. Draining water, you can drain with the little holes. It's actually supposedly for being able to determine the serving size of one pasta for one person. So go ahead. Next time you're making pasta, try it and see if it works for you, right? Maybe you want more, maybe less. Who knows? Next slide. We've got another thing. These are what? The rivets on jeans. And they're not actually just for aesthetics. It's not just a style thing. It's actually, it's put in places that are high tear, high wear, and it prevents your jeans from ripping up prematurely. Let's go to the last one. This one's nice. I never th realized this or thought about it. Apparently, the hole um, on the top of your pen cap is not so that your pen cap can have oxygen, right? The hole is so that if someone ends up swallowing it, they don't end up suffocating and that there's a hole and that they can be saved from that. Why do I bring up all these different examples right now? Because these are things that you have maybe have seen before, but maybe never knew the purpose behind it, right? It's always there. Maybe we just never question, right? All pens, pen caps have holes, right? All jeans have rivets, all, you know, it's just a blue reflector. Well, have you ever wondered about the virgin birth? We're starting our Christmas series, and we're going to be talking about the virgin birth today. Why the virgin birth? Right? We all know it's part of Christmas, right? Everybody knows that. It's a very famous part of Christmas. It's an essential part of Christmas. But why? And at face value, if you just look at it from the outside, it might seem a little random, right? It might seem a little bit random, like, or it might just seem like a, just another miracle, right? Just another miracle that Jesus does. He heals these guys. He's born of a virgin. Well, interestingly enough, Larry King, for those of you that might know Larry King, he was the CNN talk show host. Think like Joe Rogan, but back in the day, right? He interviewing people. Uh, he was once asked, who would you like to interview most? And he said, oh, Jesus Christ. Well, what would you ask him, Larry? Well, I would ask him if he was actually indeed born of a virgin. Why? He says, because that would be the defining moment of history for me. And Larry King is spot on. The fact that the virgin birth happened is monumental in the history of our world. But not everybody looks at it so honestly and positively. There are many unbelievers, even in the days of Jesus, we read, they question his birth, right? They said, well, we weren't born of adultery, John 6, 42, 8, 41. 
as early as the 8th century, we see there's this anti-Christian cult that was actually popularizing this teaching that Mary went off and slept with Joseph's neighbor, right? And that's how Jesus was born. So it was always kind of, there's always drama around this teaching of the virgin birth. There is even people who profess to believers, as profess to be believers, one influential theology professor said, you know, it makes no difference if the virgin birth actually happened or not. Another church leader said, well, no, no, it happened in our imaginations, and that's okay. So one might wonder, why is the virgin birth such a big deal? Does it actually matter? So let's read the text of today. Open up your Bibles, please, to Luke chapter 1. And we'll, we'll start with verse 28, but really we're going to be in 34 through 37. It's just a small set of verses, but we're going to dig through them. So verse 28, Luke 1 verse 28. <clears throat> this is the angel Gabriel. He appears to Mary, the mother of Jesus. It says, and he came to her and said, greetings, O favored one. The Lord is with you. She, she was greatly troubled at the saying and tried to discern what sort of greeting this might be. And the angel said to her, Do not be afraid, Mary, for you have found favor with God. And behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus. And he will be great and will be called the Son of the Most High. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. And this is kind of the, the main verses we'll be in today. And Mary said to the angel, how will this be since I'm a virgin? And the angel answered her, The Holy Spirit will come upon you, and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be called Holy, the Son of God. And behold, your relative Elizabeth, in her old age, has also conceived a son. And, in, and this is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God." This is the word of the Lord. Today we're going to look at three reasons why the virgin birth is still significant today. And it is significant to each and every single one of us. The first reason is we see that Jesus, by being born of a virgin, he is the son of God. Verse 35. It's critical because it affirms that he is the son of God. And, and we, we take this for granted, right? Especially if we grew up as Christians, like, well, of course he's the son of God. But looking kind of from an outside perspective, imagine hearing about it for the first time. You're like, he's the son of God. Psh, yeah, right. Well, he was born of a virgin. Okay, well, that, that changes things, right? It's not that Jesus was just some ordinary guy, and he was living his life, and at one special moment, he became the son of God, right? He's not just a really good person. He's actually the son of God himself. God is directly his father, there's no room to speculate or to guess, well, you know, maybe he's the son of God symbolically or metaphorically or in our hearts. No, no, no. He is directly the son of God, literally. And from the very beginning, Jesus was unique. This is what the virgin birth tells us. 
And in a way, he is the only one, like one other person in the Bible because of this. Who is that man? Who is that man, church? Adam. Adam. Adam is the only other person in the Bible that doesn't have a human father, but has God as his own father. And Luke actually makes mention of Adam later in the genealogy in Luke chapter 3. We see that Luke 3, 23 says, Jesus, when he began his ministry, was about 30 years of age, beginning being the son, as was supposed, of Joseph, the son of Heli, the son of Matan, the son of Levi, verse 38, and he finishes the genealogy, says the son of Enos, the son of Seth, the son of Adam, the son of God. There is this connection in the gospel of Luke between Jesus and Adam. There's this comparison. Here we see that Adam is the son of God and Jesus is called the son of God in Luke 1. And I'm going to explain the significance between this link in the next point. But all this to say is the virgin birth is essential because it affirms that Jesus, as the second person of the Trinity, was able to pay the price for us. You see, we as people, we can't pay our, the, the price to ransom one another. Even if you were to live a perfect life, that would only be enough for you to save your own self, right? Psalm 48 verse 7 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. We can't. That's the most we can do. But the Son of God, Matthew 20 verse 28, Even as the Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Being the Son of God, being born of a virgin, allows Him to pay a price for all people. Being born of a virgin affirms that God Himself came to us. Not just another prophet, not just another king, but someone directly from God. This is the real deal, right? The Old Testament is full of kings and rulers that failed the people of Israel. One after another. They all sin, they all stumble. None were ultimately powerful enough to establish the kingdom of God. And here we see God himself coming down and beginning his reign. Pastor William Evans was a very unusually accomplished man. He memorized the entire Bible, entire KGV Bible. He wrote a bunch of books and when he retired, he moved to Hollywood to help his son, who was also pastoring. And whenever his son would be out of town, Dr. William Evans would preach there. And on one unforgettable Sunday, Dr. Evans stands up, and he begins to preach from the virgin birth, and he's holding his Bible, and he reads about the virgin birth, and he just takes these pages and just rips them out and just throws them. Everyone's shocked. What is he doing? And he says, well, if we can't believe in the virgin birth, let's just tear it out. Then he starts tearing out pages of the resurrection, then the miracles and everything else that's supernatural. He tears it out, and the whole pulpit is just surrounded with just pages littered everywhere. And he says, all we have left is the Sermon on the Mount. That's it. But if it was not preached by a divine Christ 
by Christ who is God himself, then his sermon means nothing to us. He hit the nail on the head. Without the virgin birth, without the supernatural, there is no weight to the words of Jesus. But there is weight because he is the son of God. So the first reason why the virgin birth is significant is because it affirms the deity of Christ and all of its implications. The second reason is because he is holy. Verse 35, Gabriel telling Mary, says, Therefore, the child to be born will be called holy. Now, as we read this, we should ask ourselves the question, why does Gabriel use the word holy? Why not, you know, he shall be powerful, he shall be almighty, he shall be loving, he shall be the light of the world, he shall be wise and good and glorious. Why specifically holy? There's a reason. Gabriel didn't just pick a nice word out of, you know, the nice word jar and just popped it in. There's a specific reason why he said he shall be called holy. Remember the genealogy that we just looked at in Luke 3? What happens in Luke 3, as Luke 3 finishes and Luke 4 begins, and by the way, there were no chapter divisions when Luke wrote it, as soon as he's done talking about him being the son of Adam, the son of God, what happens right after that? Jesus is led into the wilderness to be tempted by the devil. And what's interesting is the other gospels, Matthew and Mark, they all talk about the baptism of Jesus and immediately he goes into the wilderness to be tempted. There's just one after another. It just followed right away. Luke breaks it up and inserts the genealogy between his baptism and his temptation in the wilderness. Very interesting. And he finishes the genealogy talking about Adam and as soon as he's done talking about Adam, he goes into the wilderness what he's doing is he's creating a parallel. Because the wilderness is both an image of what in the Old Testament? Israel being tempted in the wilderness and failing, right? But that itself is an image of what else? Adam. Adam in the garden as he gets tempted and he ends up sinning. But you see the contrast, right? Adam had everything. He was in the garden. Everything was provided for him, and he still fell. Jesus was in the wilderness, and he had nothing. He was hungry after 40 days of fasting, and he withstood. In a way, you could say the story of Christmas is the story of the two sons of God. The two sons of God, Adam and Jesus. And Another reason for the virgin birth is to show that Jesus, in a way, is not like Adam, right? In other words, he had another nature from Adam. We as Christians, we believe in the idea of original sin. That, through, that because of Adam and through Adam, we inherit a sinful, corrupt nature, right? Psalm 51, verse 5 David says, behold, I was brought forth in iniquity, meaning I was born in iniquity, and in sin did my mother conceive me, meaning we are born sinful through and through, just fully corrupt, right? 
recently, my one-year-old daughter, she's a year and three months, and I was playing with her, and, and, and then, you know, she got upset over something, and she picks up her hand, and she just smacks me. I'm like, you can't do that, baby. Like, that's not okay. You can't smack people when you're not happy with them over any little thing. And it's crazy because nobody taught her to, to hit other people, right? In fact, we discourage you. We, we never even showed her how to do that. She figured that one out on her own. And then she raises her little cute hand again to hit me. I'm like, no, you, you can't hit people. No, you can't. And she understood. And she's just standing there. And you can see she gets even more upset. And she just turns around, comes up to the TV stand, and just smacks the TV stand only to realize the TV stand isn't as soft as Papa, and she starts crying. And uh, it, it was hilarious, but at the same time, it's crazy. You could see the sin there from the very beginning, from the seed stages. We are brought forth in iniquity. The virgin birth, on the other hand, makes a break from Adam's sinful nature. That's why... To answer the question, why I said, why did Gabriel say holy? To show that Jesus was breaking from the sinful nature of Adam, and his nature was holy. There was no sinful nature in him. There was no sin in him. He is pure. He is uncorrupted. He is set apart for God. In fact... The first hint, anybody can t anyone tell me where the first hint of the gospel is in the Bible? Which chapter? In what book? Genesis what? Three, right? <clears throat> Sometimes called the Proto-Evangelion, meaning the first gospel. This is when, G when God is cursing the serpent. He says, I will put enmity between you. And this is interesting. He says, the, and the woman. Why not Adam, Right? And between your offspring and her offspring, you shall bruise his, you, he shall bruise your head, and you shall bruise his heel. Meaning, the image there is the snake biting the heel, but people stepping on the snake. But, but if you go further, right, and you look into the New Testament, what it's saying is, you might hurt him a little bit, but he will crush your head. He will destroy you, right? But what's interesting is that this word offspring, well, seed, if you really look at the Hebrew, this word seed almost always is used in reference to a man, like the offspring of Abraham, right? But here, God talks about not the offspring of Adam, but the offspring of the woman. Very, very interesting. And again, as, as those who now live in the era of the New Testament, we understand what this is pointing to. This is pointing to Jesus and the gospel and the virgin birth in a way. Christ has a holy and sinless nature. By being born of a woman only and from God being his father, he breaks from the line of Adam in a way. Right? He, Mary is still a descendant of Adam. But now... Instead of just, imagine one like waterfall or stream, instead of one, there is now two. There are two heads, right? Two domains in humanity. One is corrupt, the other one is holy. And the Bible speaks very clearly comparing 
Adam to Jesus. Romans 5 verse 12 says, Therefore, as sin came into the world through one man, that's talking about Adam, and through and death through sin, so death spread to all men because all sinned. Verse 15, but the free gift is not like the trespass. The trespass is the sin of Adam. For if many died through one man's trespass, much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of the one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of one man's sin. For the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. Verse 18, therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience, the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. Church, Christ is now our new head representative. He is our new leader before whom we bow. And that's why 1 Corinthians 15, 22 says, For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. You can compare Christ and Adam as to two huge ships, right? And Adam, you could say, is like the Titanic, right? He's big. He's a big deal. He's the biggest ship at that time. He's beautiful, magnificent, made in the image of God. The glory of God made manifest, made visible. But when he sinned, it's like that Titanic that hit the iceberg, right? He now has a hole. And it is sinking. It is filling up and it will go down very quickly. It is only a matter of time until it fully descends to its watery grave. That is for Adam and all who are in him. But the other one, Christ, he too hit an iceberg. But he remained intact. He was not punctured. Church, Titanic went down. In two hours and 40 minutes. That's nothing. That's less than two of these services. And that was it. That enormous chunk of metal just went all the way down. And if you compare the history of fallen humanity. Let's just say 6,000 years. Compared to eternity. Then human history is just a speck on the scale Right? And soon this fallen humanity in Adam will go down forever. And my question for all of you here today is who is your head? Who are you following? Are you following Adam who wanted to make his own path? Or are you following Jesus and are you submitting to his headship and his rule? The Word of God warns us that in Adam all die. But in all who are in Christ shall be made alive. Amen, church? We shall all be made alive. Jesus came into this world to give humanity another chance. And we can surrender before him. We can worship him and trust in him. He has has blazed a new trail. One that leads upward instead of downward. 
to hell, which is the path that Adam is on. He has broken from that path. He has made a new one. And the question is, will you follow him with your life? Will you follow him? So the virgin birth is essential, one, because it affirms the deity of Jesus and all of its implications. It affirms that he is holy, having broken from the fallen nature of Adam. And lastly, it affirms that nothing is impossible with God. Luke 1, verse 36, read with me, and behold, your relative Elizabeth in her old age has also conceived a son. This is the sixth month with her who is called barren, for nothing will be impossible with God. This last point is to show that the virgin birth is anything but random. It is not random. In fact, it is, it is, it is I don't know, stitched, I don't know if that's the right word, into the Old Testament. It is woven through the Old Testament. For those of you that might not be too familiar with the Christmas story, Mary, who was to give birth to Jesus, had a relative, Elizabeth, and she was older, and she was barren her whole life, and that was a reproach to her, right? And we read that the angel also appeared to Mary's, uh, sorry, Elizabeth's husband and said, you will have a child. So again, this is miraculous birth. A woman who is in her old age, she's already barren, and miraculously she gets pregnant, right? And this, in in reference to both Elizabeth giving birth as a barren woman and Mary as a virgin, to them, both of them giving birth, he says in reference to this, he says, nothing will be impossible with God. Now this quote is actually a quote from the Old Testament. If we look at Genesis 18.4, what happens there? Genesis 18.4, in the timeline of the Bible, God has called out Abraham from his, where he used to live. Abraham went by faith, not knowing where he was going. And 25 years before Genesis 18.14, God had already promised Abraham, he said, your offspring shall be more numerous than the stars. And here he is, 25 years later, he's 99 years old, and he still has nothing. His wife is 89 years old, and she still has nothing. In fact, she's gone through menopause. She can't have children. And God comes, and he tells her, is anything too hard for the Lord? At the appointed time, I will return to you about this time next year, and Sarah shall have a son. That's exactly what the angel told Mary, except not as a rhetorical question. He just states it plainly. He says, nothing will be impossible with God. The Old Testament has a very clear pattern of God miraculously creating life where there is none, especially in barren women giving birth. We see that with Sarah. Sarah gives birth to Isaac, miracle child, at the age of 90. Isaac grows up, gets married to Rebecca. Guess what? Rebecca is also barren, also cannot have children. God also miraculously gives Rebecca two twin boys, right? 
And if we continue reading, reading the New Testament, we read Old Testament, we read that Hannah, who was the mother of Samuel, the great prophet of Israel, she was also barren. We read the story of Samson. His mom was also barren. We read about Elizabeth, Mary's relative, also barren. And all of these examples, what God is doing is he's taking the deadness of the barren womb and he is creating life. And all of these births were a buildup to the virgin birth. God knew he wanted to send Jesus into the world through the virgin birth and everything else is just a buildup to this climactic moment of how Jesus would enter into the world. It is the beautiful plan of God. And you could actually say that it's this, this miracle of birth to the barren, to the virgins. It's actually... A related to the miracle of creation. It's tied to that, right? Adam was made from dust. He was made from the earth, right? From lifelessness, lifeless dust. God takes this lifeless dust and gives it life. In fact, it's, it's probably creation is probably a bigger miracle than a barren woman giving birth. Truly, creation is as big of a miracle as any other church. I mean, the fact, I don't know if you've ever had these moments where you like thought about, like in a second, you, you look through your eyes in a different lens, and you just thought about the fact that you just look around, like the fact that there is something rather than nothing. Have you ever marveled at that? I want you to look around, like look in the eyes of another person right now. Just turn around. Just look in somebody else's eyes. It's okay. Just look. The fact that there is another pair of eyeballs looking at you, beholding you, feeling maybe awkward and self-conscious, the fact that there is something rather than nothing is a miracle. Colors, sounds, objects, ideas, thoughts, little humans, right? It's amazing. It's a miracle. It is a miracle of God, and it is the power of God at display. I love science. I really do. But still, to this day, with all of our scientific progress, we have still not been able to create life from scratch. We can't. We can create synthetic cells that use parts of existing cells, but we are far from building a living cell from scratch. And if you want to get really technical, what is scratch, right? Even if one day scientists build the cell, right, just from molecules, well, they still use the Lego pieces that God created, right? The molecules, the atoms. God made that. Speaking of creation, it's interesting because we see this parallel between creation and Luke 1. Genesis 1 and Luke 1. Just as at creation, the earth was formless and empty, dark, Mary's womb was empty, barren, just as at creation, the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters, the Spirit of God came upon Mary. 
Only God can create something out of nothing, right? Only God can perform the miracle of creation, the miracle of incarnation, and the miracle of the virgin birth. And all of this is a demonstration of the power of God. In fact, you could say that the virgin birth is actually pointing to something even greater, and that is the resurrection. Right? Because the resurrection, if you really think about it, is just another creation miracle. It's, it's, it's taking, instead of creation, it's recreation, right? It's taking something that was once alive, now died, and now giving it life again, right? It's going from darkness to light. It's going from dust to Adam, from the empty womb to a live child, from death to life. All of them are the same. All of the works of God have a pattern. They have a signature to them. So what's our takeaway? What's my takeaway as I'm leaving this room? Well, one very important one is that we must be firmly rooted in the fact that nothing can stop God from fulfilling his purposes. We see the power of God at display. Not barrenness, not old age, not even death itself. Church, because of Christmas, we have an unshakable hope. The Word of God says that we have a living hope. 1 Peter 1, 3, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. According to His great mercy, He has caused us to be born again to a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead. We have a hope that's unshakable now. No matter what you are going through in Christ, in Christmas, in the gospel, we all have room for infinite hope. Against all odds, Jesus was born. Against all that is possible, he was raised. Against all that is possible, he saved us. That's the gospel, amen? We were dead in our sins. I want, you, I want us to see how hopeless our situation is apart from Jesus. Ephesians 2, verse 1. Listen to this carefully, church. And you, he's talking about all people, were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience, among whom we all once lived in the passions of our flesh, carrying out the desires of the body and the mind, and were by nature children of wrath, like the rest of mankind. But God, this is the moment, but God being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We have infinite hope. We've been saved. God has dealt with our biggest problem, church. We have so much room for rejoicing, so much room for hope. This is the good news of Christmas. This is literally the gospel. Against all that is possible, he will also bring us home. No matter how bad things might get here for me on earth, because of Christmas, 
we always have hope. Invincible, more unshakable than Mount Everest kind of hope. That's what we have in Jesus. Christmas is drenched in hope. For those of you that have washed your cars in the last couple of years, you might remember that big yellow sponge, right? The thick one that you put in the bucket and then you take it out and it is just heavy, right? And it's just pouring water out. That's Christmas and hope. It is full of hope. There is no lack. Christmas is God triumphing over circumstances. God doing the impossible. You see, God loves it when the odds are against him because it is an opportunity for him to display his almighty power. As I call the band up, I want to finish with a story about ancient Israel. They were being oppressed by their enemies. Their enemies would pillage them, tax them heavily, kind of take, you know, all their hard labor. They would enslave them, abuse them. They couldn't have any weapons to defend themselves. And one day, an angel appears to a man. And he says, you're going to go fight the enemies of Israel. He's really freaked out. He's scared. But that man ends up getting an army of 32,000 men. The name of that man is Gideon. And, and as they're about to go attack the army, and there's about at least 120,000 men there. Now, when you're attacking, you know, military strategy, best practices says you want to have three people for every one person that your enemy has when you're attacking because you have a disadvantage, right? So he's already doing it wrong, right? He's already, four, you know, it's one of us for every four of them. And so they get ready and God says, no, no, no. This is way too many people. There's way too many people here. He says, say, hey, if you're afraid, you have any reservation, you have any reason not to do this, it's okay. You can walk away. No hard feelings. More than half of them leave. So now Gideon is left with 10,000. I mean, I'd be shaking in my boots if I was Gideon, right? I mean, it was already bad. I was already hoping for a miracle. And now I need a miracle. And then God says, oh, no, 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 this is still way too many. Have them go drink by the brook. And for those that drink in a specific way, they kneel to drink with their hands to their mouth, set those aside, release everybody else. And by the time Gideon was done doing that, all he had was 300 men. 300 men. It's the original 300, right? That's a 1 to 400 ratio. 1 to 400 ratio. And so, then God says, okay, now you are ready to go attack the Midianites. I want you to do it at night. And here's what I want you to do. Take with yourself only a torch and a trumpet. No sword, nor bow, no bow, no weapon at all. And so they come, they surround them, they light their torches, they blow the trumpets as if a huge army was coming. And we read that God throws their entire army into chaos. Now what happened is there was at least three different nations coming together, forming an alliance. The Midianites, the Amalekites, and all the people of the east. 
probably what happened is in chaos, they thought, oh, they're teaming up against us or they're teaming up against us. And they just start slaying one another. They start killing each other. And once that starts, you can't stop that, right? And they start killing one another. And these guys are just lit in their torches and just blowing their trumpets. And 120,000 enemies of Israel were killed that night. No sword, not an arrow, just 300 guys with flashlights and megaphones. That's it. And God had saved Israel. God loves having the odds stacked against him. You know why? Because God loves it when he gets all the glory. He loves that. Christmas is a time of invincible hope. Church, all things are possible with God. No matter what you are going through right now, no matter how good or maybe how bad, you need to remember the hope that comes from Christmas. Not in the sense that God will fulfill all your current wishes and and, and give you all that you want right now, but that God will actually take care of you. He will actually provide for you in a way that truly matters most, in a way that most of us probably don't even understand we need. Christmas is the power of God put on full display. It's God's way of telling the world, I don't need to play by your rules. I don't care. It's God's way of saying, I will do what I want, when I want it, and how I want it. And that's the same God that is for us. The same God that is with us, Emmanuel. And will he not take care of us with his almighty power? And will he not bring to completion the good work that he started in each and every one of us? Let's stand. Let's pray. Give you a minute of just quiet response time. Just talk to God. Let your heart overflow towards him. The infant in the manger, God in the flesh, the word become flesh, God with us. Thank you for coming. Thank you for the way you arrived. Lord, and I pray for anyone who has not yet bowed the knee to you, anyone who isn't following you, but they're following Adam, Lord, I pray that they would turn. They would turn to you and be saved and follow the new path, the new trail you have blazed for us, the one that leads upward to eternity, life with you. Please bless us and be with us and help all of our hearts be firm in trusting you and your power for your glory. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.